0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the EUVC podcast. I'm David and I'm joined by Andreas. Today we have Stefan Helgesen with us. Stefan is the founder of Creandum, a European early stage venture firm with no appointed headquarter but offices or hubs as they call it in Sweden, London, Berlin and San Francisco. They just turned 20 years and are investing out of their sixth fund, which is a 500 million US dollars fund to back founders and companies across Europe. In addition to Europe, they invest in European diaspora founders in the US. The firm is a generalist investor, but have organized themselves in six main vertu- verticals. Health, climate, technical SaaS, application SaaS, fintech, and consumer, where they spend most of the time. The firm has approximately 2 billion US dollars under management and has done close to 150 investments over the years. At Criandum, Stefan leads the climate vertical and is also a very active investment in SaaS companies. If you're listening in and you love our show, don't forget to drop us a review. Follow the pod and subscribe at eu.vc.
1: And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Appyday is the leading all-in-one ESG platform for GPs. Central to Appyday's philosophy is that ESG for your portfolio companies must be relevant and value-adding, making you a partner to your companies, not adding more reporting burdens. Happy Day offers AI led ESG reporting, full SFDR compliance, including disclosure templates, EU taxonomy, carbon accounting, due diligence assessments, and most importantly, tangible tools to help your companies, like ESG resources and policy templates. See why over 1,000 portfolio companies leading Article 9 funds and $100 billion of AUM trust Appaday to manage ESG and sustainability across their ecosystems. Take a free product tour at appaday.com or book a No Obligations ESG VC Strategy Session with one of their experts.
0: Tear down
1: this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This this
0: is a union of values.
1: United and determined, we
0: can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem, requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. new, New beginnings.
2: Let's start acting.
0: This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured.
2: So, Stefan, we had a great time together in Bucharest, but most of our audience were unfortunately not there. So let's just start this thing off by telling your story about how you got into venture.
3: So it's a it's a good question. So. Hey, I'm I'm originally from a small farm outside a university town down in southern Sweden. And, you know, when I grew up, I, I knew nothing about business or, or anything like that. But I was lucky. So my, my mother eventually got the whole family to move into the city. Age 15. One thing led to another. And, you know, as as most Europeans, I then started to work at big companies after my degree. Those big companies, and specifically McKinsey, where I was a consultant, that brought me to the Bay Area, summer of 99. And the first evening, I met a guy, a guy, a guy called Guy Kawasaki. He was, at the time, a former chief evangelist of Apple. And uh, he told me a bunch of things. Uh, one of them was that in Silicon Valley, only the bus drivers have ties. So, you know, I ripped off the tie pretty, pretty. <laughs> But he, you know, he also made me realize that I was working for what I strongly felt was the losers of tomorrow and not the winners of tomorrow. And that the combination of, you know, increasing computing power and the Internet was going to change the world. And I remember clearly thinking that, hey, if they can do it over here in the Bay Area, why can't we do it in Europe?
0: And we also we also had a pre-chat stuff and about, um, I can't remember the word that you used, but they had a little, a little big stint in fencing. I'd love, I'd love to share that with our, with our audience as well. I think it's super cool to, to reveal some of the stories of our guests as well.
3: Yeah. So uh, if my wife listens to this, she's going to give me a hard time because you know, <laughs> I've always made it in small sports. So I played for Sweden in field hockey. I was, believe it or not, I was even the coach of the national team and the president wow. of the Swedish Hockey Association, again, field hockey. And then I picked up uh, fencing, age 30, while trying it out at a bachelor party. And then eventually, actually <laughs> qualified for World Cup four years uh, later. But she is saying that it's it's only because I'm not that good in sports, so I have to focus yeah. on these niche sports. He was very good <laughs> in soccer. And, you know, I know I <laughs> Anything in soccer, so that's sort of the, <laughs> the sad truth. Agnes. It's better to be a big fish in a small pond than yeah, exactly right than to be an average size fish in a big ocean,
2: and that's why you found a creandum in uh in in Europe. Can I so can you, I bring that now? <laughs> the
3: venture it's a good one. I mean, the venture pond you know wasn't that big at the time, or actually, it's interesting, it was much bigger than, than we think today. I mean, in the Nordics, you know, back in 03 or actually fall of 02, when when I started Crandom, there were a bunch of venture firms around. But what happened after the internet bubble burst in 2000 was that they all went to what I call 3X investing. And if you do a bunch of investments that all aim to do 3X, what's your fund going to end up at? Well, you know, I think maybe 1.3, 1.4, and that's not returns for venture. So they all eventually died.
2: Can he ask you about that stuff? And because that's, we've seen now we've seen that that we keep getting data out, especially from Cambridge Associates. That's quoted everywhere, saying that European venture outperforms U.S. And then you've got this history. I think where you're completely right in saying that that where venture comes from in Europe is certainly a more conservative approach, where you take more time and you would also invest in less moonshot type ideals, because that is then maybe a good legacy to have, to then have then adopted U.S. principles, but you still have this bit more conservative approach to investing than what you see in the U.S. Do you think that that's the explainer of why our performance is, is better, uh, that we have a different investing style than the U.S.? Or do you think that that's actually something that we need to shed more in Europe? and it's just because we have a better priced and, and 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 a very very good talent pool in Europe that has you know yet to really come to a fruition and that's what we're reaping right now.
3: Yeah, so the, there's there's a, there's a lot of questions in there Andreas. I'll I'll try to I always try
2: and talk enough so you can pick something. <laughs>
3: <laughs> good one. No, but hey, I'm 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 super bullish on Europe and you may have seen that we put out a report this summer together with Dealroom and I think the core essence of that report basically says that finally, after many years, Europe is is on roll. And I think if you look at the most important aspect, which is volume of people, hence talent, Europe is close to a 2X advantage versus the US. It's close to 2X in population, but then on top of that, we have lots of immigration. And immigration is fantastic for entrepreneurship and startups. Just look at Silicon Valley where I think more than half of all successful startups have had one or two first or second generation immigrants as co-founders. And the same thing will happen in, in Europe. Now, why hasn't Europe gotten there yet? Well, I think there's a number of reasons, you know, it's not only investing style, et cetera. And I think the most important reason is that the ecosystem in the U.S. started, call it 50 years ago, whereas here, I think to be, you know, to be very frank, maybe it started 20 years ago, and maybe the last 10 or 12 years, it really has momentum. So as with many things in life, there is this important time component. And I actually think that time, not only, but time will actually, so to say, solve some of these issues. It will not fully and immediately solve the cultural difference. And to the point on, of investing, I mean, I think one of the reasons why, why you know, we are still standing, so to say, after 20 years is that we were very influenced by the U.S. early on. Uh, we spent a lot of time there. We can come back to that later. But I think it really inspired us to think big and go for those, you know, swing for the fences type of opportunities and, and entrepreneurs. Some of my friends sometimes ask, you know, what it is like to be an investor in venture. And sometimes I feel it's like having your head inside a beehive, you know, 16 hours yeah. a day.
2: And success is contingent on your ability to pick which bee to focus on.
3: Exactly. It's just constant noise all the time. And out of that complete noise and, and somewhere, you know, 8, 10,000 opportunities a year, you need to focus and you need to eventually find those 10, 15 opportunities that you want to do. And, and that, that is the real challenge. I think in what we do to focus out of this mass of, of opportunities,
2: and we're going to talk much more about how you've built the firm, and that obviously that's going to be one of the topics: decision making, and and first decision is where do we focus, and then, and then there's a bunch of uh, uh, down the line decisions. Stefan, I wanna I wanna take us to a, to to your pivotal moment in your career because I think it's incredibly interesting. So I'll just you up like this stuff and give say, us, and give us your pivotal moment.
3: Yeah, I mean, hey, there, there are probably many and, and most you don't remember, but I think for me, a pivotal moment was back in 2004, where I suddenly got a phone call. I actually got phone calls uh, at that time. You know, it wasn't just texts and, and WhatsApps and, and emails. I got a phone call from an American woman who was the CEO of something called the Kaufman Fellows Program. And the Calf & Fellows program was a, I think, pretty exclusive training program for uh, young emerging leaders in the American venture capital industry. And they had heard of me and had decided to make class 10. So class 10 was sort of the 10th annual program to an international program. And in that international program, they wanted emerging venture leaders from all around the world to complement the say 20 liters that they have found in the american ecosystem i have to say that you know it it changed my life you know i got friends for life but i think it also reinforced that american dna that we tried to have from the get-go in in our firm of aim for the stars end up you know maybe on the moon uh, swing for the fences find these massive opportunities, super bold entrepreneurs. I got into into that program. I spent two years and I still have, you know, as I said, lifelong friends that I meet on a regular basis. And, And the funny thing was they had actually found me through a training course that I took in Atlanta, something called the Venture Capital Institute. And during that event, I had met a couple of fellows from class nine who said, hey, there's this Swedish dude. You know you should talk to him. He's he's probably something.
2: Well, they had a nose for talent, I guess. Let's get it let's get us into the uh, take a stance section.
0: Take a stance.
2: Now Stefan, I would love to hear you take a stance on something I've heard quite often come out of the mouth of EIF employees, and that is Deep tech is the next big thing in Europe.
3: I don't think it's only the EIF that have said <laughs> this. I actually think that uh, a lot of people talk about this and a, a bunch of emerging managers, a bunch of established managers have a deep tech uh, practice, etc. And hey, I'm a massive believer in innovation. Innovation. I love not the professors and, and all of that, right? And even in Sweden, where I come from, You know, a lot of the companies we have, have based them on innovations going way back. But I also think we should look at this with a bit of, you know, sober minds. And we once looked at a large number of really successful and valuable companies. I think it was like 100. And then we tried to identify how many of them were based on true innovation, deep technology, and not the professor or something like that. And I think with a bit of imagination, we concluded that it was one out of those 100 companies. And you know that may sound crazy. Well, I actually don't think it is because at the end of the day, I think you know, most great companies and, and really valuable companies, they are based more on great founders with bold ideas and huge plans. If you only have a technical innovation, Well, actually, if you only have an idea and not the drive, have you ever tried to sell that idea? I actually think you should. Should you go down the street and try to sell the idea? And I can guarantee no one's going to buy it. It is so much about making it happen. In addition, you know, in, in today's world, I think a lot of innovation is around design. It's about understanding the user. It is about creating a user interface and a product and a service that people just love. Think about Apple and the MacBook and the amount of time that Steve Jobs put into getting the the curve right on the side of the MacBook and all of that. To me, that is innovation today. It doesn't mean that things will change going forward, but I think there's a massive movement right now and opportunities simply by delighting the end user, whether it's enterprise or consumer. I don't think it matters too much.
0: Stefan, I think there's a lot of topics here to deep dive on, and I'm gonna go a bit on a on a kind of side topic here just because I'd love to hear you expand on it. Before we went in the take-a-stance round, we we're talking a bit about how venture can feel like put sticking your head into a beehive, <laughs> right? And the, the the ability to focus and, and, and pick where to spend your attention. I'd love to ask you to share some exact concrete examples of that and and also more specifically like core learnings that you've had and obviously all of this within this context of building up creandum from the ground up because i think that's an incredibly interesting perspective that you can bring to the table that many of our listeners would love to would love to hear
3: oh yeah i mean hey it, it's it's a massive challenge and, and i think one that we struggle with uh, every day i i may my might go in a slightly tangential direction here i um I think if you look at it, if you look at this industry, it is really about a very few select number of companies every year in whatever region that you focus on. In Europe, I would argue that at the end of the day, it's probably only three, four, five, maybe six, seven companies every year that really matter. It is not a certain sector. It's not a certain country. It's a couple of companies. And if With a power law in this industry, you need to be in one or several of those to really have returns. And then I think the question is in this beehive of, again, 10,000 opportunities every year, how the hell do you make sure that you are in those five or six? And I think one important aspect here is to look at your deal flow. You need to see the top 1% of deals. If you only see the 99, I think you if this is sort of some sort of rank of quality, if you only see the 99, I think you should actually stop doing what you're doing. Because those five, six, seven opportunities are very likely, at least to some 80, 90% likelihood in that top 1%. So your focus needs to be on creating a machine and a brand firm brand, individual brand, process, et cetera, that allows you to talk, tap into the top 1%. How does that worldview, Stefan,
0: coexist or go hand in hand with, so when I introduced you in the beginning, I said you're focused more on the climate space, right? And you just said um, that, you know, what really, there's a couple of companies, four, maybe five a year that really matter, right? Who knows which sector, who knows what country, right? How do those two worldviews coexist where you have a firm, you have people that are specializing in sectors, but you also have this firm belief that it's only a couple of companies that really matter. And this year, none might, none is in climate tech next year. All of them might be, who
3: knows, right? We don't know. A successful venture firm or franchise, as I like to call it, we can come back to that. I think you need to combine two ways of working. One is you develop thesis on transformational change that you think will provide opportunities. But by the way, if there are no great entrepreneurs in those areas, it doesn't really matter. And then secondly, you, you put your ear on the rail and you try to find a way of working so that you are better than others in hearing when the train comes. And that is basically speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs. And then you combine these two things. And, and on climate, which you mentioned, I, I, that's something that I think is, is both super important for us as an industry and, and as humans to get involved in. But secondly, I think it's also a great investment area. And, and why do I say that? I mean, some that have been in this industry for a long time will say, hey, you know, there was the clean tech wave 15 years ago, basically you know, 90% of all dollars were just wasted and very few transformational companies were built. And I think that's right, but I also think a lot of those dollars at the time, they went into turbines and pipes and engines and a lot of hard stuff. I think now there is an opportunity in in the software side. And I base that on one fundamental change that is affecting what we believe is 20, 25% of GDP and it's electrification. And in electrification, there's a lot of hardware, but there's also some fantastic software opportunities. And that's an area where we have tried to dive deep and at the same time, listen to the best entrepreneurs that have approached us and then find that crossover between thinking yourself and listening to the entrepreneurs. Can you share any investments
0: you guys made in within that space already, or is it still too soon to disclose anything?
3: No, but you know, we've we've probably done close to 10 investments in this space. And there was a there's actually one investment we've done uh, in the electrical vehicle charging space, which was an interesting combination of us defining a thesis. This will sound terrible, but we we identified that there will be a need, obviously, for what we call the gas station of the future. We quickly realized there is already a gas station of the future. It's called Tesla Supercharger. We also figured that it's a bit like iOS. You know, it's vertically integrated. It's hardware all the way down to software. But what will eventually the market share of Tesla be? 5, 10, 15, top 20%, I think. I mean, look at iPhones. We think everyone has them, but I think their global market share is sort of 10 to 20%. So there's probably an Android type opportunity here. And at the same time, we were having a bunch of entrepreneurs approaching us saying, hey, we're building software for this. And eventually we found one that we just fell in love with. It's a Danish company called Monta. Fantastic founder. His name is Kasper Rasmussen. And these two ways of working combined and the firm invested, you know, two years or so ago, and it's a rocket ship. I'm curious, Stefan, because I'm looking. Thank you for sharing, by the way. I'm here looking at some of
0: some of the, the notes notes we exchanged in advance, and and you wrote something that really gets me thinking, which is pick the example of the fossil car and apply first principle thinking. I'd love to ask you to
3: expand on that on that concept, because I'm very curious. As you can hear, I'm a I'm a big proponent of electrification, and I try to electrify uh, everything I do with you know a, a you know. My kids drive electric mopeds, we drive an electric vehicle, we have a heat pump in the basement, et cetera, et cetera. Flights is an issue. You know, hopefully that will will, will come. But a lot of people around the world, also in close connection to me, still argue that, well, you know, it's not really that great and and uh Fossil cars are going to be around for a long time. They're actually better because they got better range and this and that. And, and, you know, Tesla doesn't have the right quality and and, and so on. You know, I'm a bit inspired by Elon Musk when it comes to his first principles thinking. And I was just thinking if we started from scratch today and compared the EV with a fossil car, one has a slightly higher capex, right? The EV, but a much lower opex. The other one has a lower. CAPEX, higher OPEX. But I think if you do a full cycle analysis, the EV is cheaper to, to drive. People you know, might disagree, but I, I think that's sort of the factor. And then you went to the politicians and said, hey, we have two alternatives here. One is the EV with its pros and cons, and the other one is a fossil car. And you know what? We're going to spread billions of this thing across the globe, in all our cities, and every single one of them will emit fumes that can make people sick. They can get cancer and all these sorts of things. Which of our politicians or us would make the decision of inserting all these polluters in our society? It's just an interesting you know, thought experiment to have. I would completely agree but now I'm going to take us into the shout-out
0: segment. Love is
1: in the air.
0: Stefan, thank you for dancing to our beautiful jingles. I appreciate that a lot. Because now I'll ask you to give a shout-out to co-investor Angel or LP for being awesome. And of course, share with us the story behind that awesomeness.
3: I think I'll start with my colleague, Fred, or actually Frederick. That's his called. When I started Crandom 20 years ago, you know, I, I know... I knew very little about this industry, and I was fortunate to be introduced to Fred when I looked for the first analyst to join our firm. He was actually the only person that I interviewed, and he came on board, and the first thing we did was to go to the U.S. for a trip to Silicon Valley, and we have been co-pilots together with a bunch of other partners. There's eight partners at Crandom today but he's the type of person that can look around, you know, not one or two corners, but six or seven corners. He usually doesn't say that much in a meeting, but at the end of the meeting, he asks that one question where you all go, damn, you know, why didn't I think about that? And it sort of almost disrupts the whole conversation sometimes. And he has been absolutely fundamental in, in building this firm. And I'm you know, proud to call him a friend and a, and a partner. I think it's one of Europe's best investors in venture. Maybe a quick other one is an LP of ours. There's about 35 of them, so so uh, you know uh, they're all amazing. They've backed us since you know since way back. Actually, one only one LP has not re-upped with us in in all our funds ever since we started.
2: I really wanted us to dive into some of your your learnings from building. Creandum from being a boutique firm all the way up to now being a franchise. I know you have this this framework of saying that there's three stages in firm development, so I'd I'd love you to lay that out for us and then give us your your three best core learnings over the last 10 years of building Creandum.
3: Yeah. So, hey, first of all, I, I think there's so many models that can work in this industry and there's no right, there's no wrong, as long as you pick your model and then try to to perfect it and I'll come back to you know what we tried to do so i think there's sort of three different models super high level one is you can be you can be a solo gp you can be a couple of of people that you get together you invest uh, you do it well but it's a relatively limited effort in terms of of time and, and horizon uh, but it can work you know extremely extremely well then, I think there's the effort of building a firm where you again, you get together. But you know you build more structure, you build more processes. but there is there is an end of life to to what you're doing. Eventually, you will either stop what you're doing or you will sort of you could almost sell the firm or or try to create value in the in the top co as it's called. And this firm belongs to a, a you know, small set of individuals, usually the founders and, and so on. And then I think there is what we're trying to do and a bunch of others are trying to do as well, which is to build a franchise. And, you know, I spent time with McKinsey back in the 90s, and I was quite intrigued by the fact that they've been able to run a partnership for close to 100 years that was still alive and kicking, probably the number one strategy consulting firm around the world. I think in our world, there's Benchmark in the US. Their motto is sort of, you know, five five investors and a dog. You know, I think now there are six, but none of those six, I think, were there from the get-go. So they obviously built a franchise where the brand stays and the way of working stays, but the people change. And one of the founding GPs there actually told one of us way, way back that at Benchmark, you're always a partner. You just go from being a general one to a limited one. And that was a, a thought that really you know stuck in our minds together with what I think a firm like McKinsey has done. So we're trying to build a franchise where all the senior partners or the GPs, as they're called, they're all equal. You borrow the keys to the firm while you're a GP. But when you are not, You hand back the keys to the firm, to the younger partners. You become an LP if you've done well, by the way. And then you show up to the AGM. You sit in the back. You're very happy that you don't have to prepare any slides or any introductory remarks. Uh, You might have your first gin and tonic slightly before lunch. (laughs) And you chuckle with your old partners and say, yeah, you know, things were better before. But, you know, they're doing a pretty good job now as well. I think that's that's something we're trying to build, and it's very inspiring, I have to say it's 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 something where you feel there's so much more you can do. and this keeps me going every day after you know twenty years and, and twenty four years in the industry.
2: There's so much. I could ask about though one of them being, when is what, when are you on that route, Stefan? <laughs> but I, I won't ask you that question here. Instead, I'll ask you to give us, you know, your, your core three learnings around, around firm building, because I think it's, it's, it's incredibly interesting to, to tease those
3: out for our audience. Again, this is from our perspective, and this can be different from from, uh, from firm to firm. We have decided to build an LP base, which is mainly institutions. And that is harder because they are more difficult to convince, Uh, they take longer time to decide and so on. But many of the best ones have what an old CIO once told me, they have 20 year long Excel sheets. And this takes time. I think the average tier one venture fund is around 17, 18 years long. So it does take time. And they have that time and they have that perspective. And once you have them on board, they are very useful. They don't die, they don't divorce, they don't get a new girlfriend, they can plan their financials better than privates, and they don't suddenly buy a new car or, or something like that, which makes it hard for them to commit to the next fund. And many of them know that they'll have to commit to three, four funds before they get money back from, from the first one. Maybe secondly, I think, uh, as I alluded to before, there are many models that can work you need to define your model and you need to define what you think is your sustainable competitive advantage, and then just perfect that. You don't have to do everything, but you have to pick one or two, three things that you will do better than others. It's, it's just like in sports, right? You have your dribble, you have your, your tactics, you have something else and you do that better than anyone else. And I think it's the same in venture. I actually think, business and sports, have so much in common. Maybe thirdly, I think almost everything about talent and recruiting. We're eight partners. Seven out of the eight partners are homegrown. My partner, Fred, started as an analyst. Our operating partner, Daniel, started as an associate back in 2007. And many of the others came into the firm at a very young age. I don't think you should only recruit internally because I think you also need, you know, outside blood. And we've done that at a number of occasions, but I think fundamentally you can do very well by getting young talents on the team and developing them. And when you do go for DNA and motivation, and when you have those people, throw them in at the deep end of the pool. And you know what most often they'll figure it out should help them. Of course. But if they don't figure it out, you know, maybe they should do something else. And that sounds very harsh. We actually don't have a very tough culture here. It's super supportive. I think introductions and and, uh, onboarding and a lot of that, you know, you need to do a minimum of it, but I think it's overrated. We have analysts, interns, that get to vote on investments, you know, the first Monday when they join this firm, and they're obviously shocked, right? But that on-the-job training to be at the table when hard decisions are made. I think that's the way to, to train and develop people.
2: I think that's incredibly true. I want to ask you one thing. We spoke about it a bit before, and that's on, on gut feeling. Because I think it's always that. And, and I think many would think that Creandum being one of the investors that do more late stage investments in, in, in Europe. There's not that much gut feeling. But I know that you're actually a strong propo- proponent of, of gut feeling and trusting that instinct.
3: Yeah. So first of all, just to set the the record straight on random strategy, we do early stage and we do early stage only. Roughly half of the investments that the funds do are seed, and the other half are A-rounds. And we have to talk about this all the time because, you know, some of those companies go on to become very big and then people just find it hard to believe that someone backed them at that early stage. But that is that is what we do. So, hey, first of all, I mean, we're pretty analytical and very thorough. And I think we do more ref calls and and so on than most other investors. But you mentioned gut feeling and sometimes gut feeling has this little negative connotation to it. And I actually think that's wrong because for me, gut feeling is simply the result of all your senses making a very logical analysis, the output of that analysis is gut feeling. And it is everything from first impression to personal interactions, to your brain's analysis when the entrepreneur goes through a market size or his product or shows you the user interface of that product and how it possibly delights you or not. That is gut feeling. I was first trained in this more than twenty-five years ago, when I worked for Procter and Gamble, and you know the big laundry detergent, uh, you know company. And, and my claim to fame there is actually that me and Steve Ballmer we had the same job. He was running Tide in in um, in uh, the U.S., and I was running Tide in uh, in the Nordics. Anyway, when we looked at commercials, the first question was always, "What's your gut feeling?" And then we went into the analysis of whatever we were talking about. So it is important. And I think it's underrated. And some of my biggest mistakes, by the way, as a venture investors invest, have been not to trust
0: my gut feeling. Now I'm going to take us into the quick fire round because we are running out of time, unfortunately. In the quick fire round, Stefan will ask you three quick answer questions. <laughs> and now, the quick fire round. What advice would you give your 10-year younger self?
3: The number one advice I'd give myself, it's not about finding what can go wrong and asking, you know, a large number of really smart questions. When you look at an opportunity, it is about finding that one or two things that you really need to believe in. Everyone can shoot down any idea, but finding those one or two things to believe in I think is is what it's all about. And it's usually a combination of people and big ideas. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising? So I think we talked about institutional LPs before. I think that's one thing they should try to get in place early on. I know it's hard. You might not get them for the first fund. By the way, you should pitch them for your first fund And you might get them for fund two or fund three. And a great way to approach a tier one institution is to say, hey, just so you know, we're not here for this fund. We're here for our second fund or our third fund. So that's one. I think a second one is don't make it too complicated trying to identify and and formulate a thesis around how the world is going to look in two, three or four or 10 years? I think the, the honest answer is, we don't know. And the best entrepreneurs will, and you should listen to them. What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture, Stefan? So the most counterintuitive thing that I've learned in venture, I learned from Catherine Main. She is a partner with Horsley Bridge, which is one of the absolute top tier venture fund of funds globally. And she showed me in their data that the average 4x net venture fund has more write offs than the average 3x net fund. So what's the conclusion? Venture is actually about taking more risk rather than less.
2: Everyone. Thank you so much for listening in, Stefan. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been amazing. If you out there enjoyed this episode of the European VC podcast, please do drop us a review, share it with your friends
1: and subscribe at u.vc. And now some words from our beloved sponsor. Appyday is the leading, all-in-one ESG platform for GPs. Central to Appyday's philosophy is that ESG for your portfolio companies must be relevant and value-adding, making you a partner to your companies, not adding more reporting burdens. (laughs) Appyday offers AI-led ESG reporting, full SFDR compliance, including disclosure templates, EU taxonomy, carbon accounting, due diligence assessments, and most importantly, tangible tools to help your companies like ESG resources and policy templates wow. see why over 1,000 portfolio companies leading article 9 funds and 100 billion dollars of AUM trust Appiday to manage ESG and sustainability across their ecosystems take a free product tour at okay. appiday.com or book a no obligations ESG VC strategy session with one of their experts
0: let's yeah, put
1: Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This
0: this is a union of values.
1: United and determined
0: we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings. new, New beginnings. Let's start
2: acting.